This is skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say is a it? ruse. Twenty years ago, I'm sitting at my desk at the Newsweek Washington Bureau, and I get a call from a source that nearly causes me to fall out of my chair. There's a little event going on at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Pentagon City you might be interested in, my source tells me, Linda Tripp is having lunch with her good friend Monica Lewinsky, and Ken Starr has the whole thing wired. Isakoff, Isakoff, hold on. Like, there's no context for this. You can't just launch into this story without, like, setting it up. What is this? People don't even know what this show is. Yeah, wh wh what is it? Look, I I've been this guy's editor for nearly 20 years now, so old habits die hard. I'm Dan Clydman. I'm the editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. I'm Michael Isikoff, the uh, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. And this is Skullduggery, a weekly podcast in which Isikoff and I will break down the latest developments in the Russia investigation and other scandals in the Trump era. We'll break news on the podcast and bring to bear some historical perspective from covering D.C. scandals for longer than we'd care admit. One of those was the Monica Lewinsky scandal. So Mike, take us back to January 1998, almost 20 years ago today. So look, I had been talking to Linda Tripp for months, ever since I had tracked her down at her office in the Pentagon. And she'd been telling me this wild story about her young friend who had been a White House intern and then went to work at the Pentagon, who was having a sexual relationship with the President of the United States. And she was telling me everything, the late night phone calls, the surreptitious visits, the gifts, the uh, blue dress with the President's semen in her closet. Um, it was wild and um, seemingly uh, improbable. Um, but as events move on, there was this lawsuit going on, the Paula Jones sexual harassment lawsuit um, against the president. And Linda Tripp had gone to the lawyers for Paula Jones and told them everything. Okay, all right, so let's back up a second yeah. here because uh, at the time that you get this call, uh, which is in the immortal words of Bob Woodward, clearly a holy shit story. Fair um, to say. Uh, you you have no idea you you as you're, you're reporting this story you had no idea that this was ever going to become a public scandal let alone lead to the impeachment of a president so oh. so so go back a yeah. little bit and tell us how did you get onto this story and then how did it become what it became yeah okay so look it starts with that Paula Jones case which uh, you know I think most people uh, probably have forgotten the details of, but they do have some resonance for it today. Paula Jones was the state employee, Arkansas, uh, working at a conference, gets summoned by the governor, Bill Clinton, to his hotel room 
um, and uh, escorted there by a state trooper. Door is closed. According to Paula Jones's account, uh, Bill Clinton, after some small talk, um, begins to make sexual advances, then drops his pants, exposes himself, and asks her to kiss it. Um, Paula Jones says she resisted, fled the room, told colleagues, friends about it at the time, important corroborating evidence, by the way, um, and then files a lawsuit against the now president, Bill Clinton. Um, most people thought this was never going to go anywhere, but the Supreme Court of the United States votes nine to nothing that this lawsuit should proceed. Um, and as it does, the Jones lawyers begin subpoenaing witnesses looking for other evidence of other women who Bill Clinton had made sexual advances to unsolicited. They learn about Kathleen Willey, who said the same thing had happened to her at the White House. I talked to Kathleen Willey. She tells me, her corroborating witness, one of them is Linda Tripp. I go see Linda Tripp. She tells me about Monica Lewinsky. You know, who knew if this was ever going to actually become a story? How would we ever prove what Linda Tripp was going to say? You know, I want to pick up that thread yeah. in a second, but you said before that you know, these are facts that ha would have uh, particular resonance today, and obviously yeah. that's an allusion to the Me Too movement. Sure. And I think it's important um, context just to understand how, how different things were back then. You actually came to Newsweek to work on this story because the Washington Post would not run your Paula Jones story. Right. There were huge fights at the Washington Post about whether to run the story of the claims of this woman, Paula Jones. Um, I thought they deserved public airing, that they were serious allegations. I remember helping to cover the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas um, uh, hearings in, in, in the Senate Judiciary Committee, and it seemed to me that if we took them seriously, we had to take what Paula Jones had to say, say seriously, particularly when I found what I thought was pretty compelling corroborating evidence that she hadn't made this up after the fact, that there was a lot of reasons to believe she had told this story at the time two friends, two colleagues, the state trooper confirmed he brought her up to the hotel room. Her co-worker, Pamela Blackard, said she remembers uh, Paula Jones coming down shaken and telling her at the time that very day. Um, so I argued. I said, listen, um, we got to report this. Huge pushback. It was derided as another eruption of Mount Bimbo by some people, and um, uh, ultimately the Post did run a story right, about right, it. Right. But, right. Well, but, but look, it's also worth remembering, yeah. um, uh, flat forwarding to twenty years, you know, twenty years forward, that we have a president in the Oval in the Oval Office serving as you know, as, uh, serving the country who's yeah. been accused of a lot of the same kinds of allegations and. Um, is is uh, not particularly under a whole lot of pressure for that right now. So yeah. well, you know. uh, look. But I want to get back to yeah. the I want to get back to the uh, the narrative. So sure. I actually recall uh, you leaving the office um, or hearing the story about you leaving the Washington bureau after you get that astonishing phone call. Yeah. And and I think you had to sort of go outside, get a breath of fresh air, absorb right. the news you'd heard. And what I do remember vividly is you coming back right. into the bureau, walking down the hall, and stopping in my office. And I remember looking at you and thinking, Jesus, what the hell happened to Isikoff? Yeah, it looks yeah. like he got punched in the stomach. Yeah. Um, and I said, what's going on? Yeah. You tell me about this phone call that Starr is investigating. And it was at that moment 
uh, that I asked you for the first time, well, who is the intern? Who yeah. is this woman? Because yeah. you'd never told anybody. I had never told anybody. How did we refer to the, to the women involved in this story? Women number one, that was uh, uh, Kathleen Willey. Women number two, that was Linda Tripp. And woman number three, that was Monica Lewinsky. But look, the key here is that star was investigating this. That's what made it a story. I knew at that point I was sitting on a political earthquake that once this got out, it was going to be huge. Because, and it would say right. as much yeah. about Ken Starr and his prosecutorial right. conduct in deciding to investigate this as it would about Clinton's recklessness and mendacity. Right. Either way, um, it was a story. Right. And what, what you know, what we, it's interesting to remember that for all those months that you were reporting this story, I remember our bureau chief, Ann McDaniel, a very cool-headed woman, saying, Mike, you got to keep reporting this um, carefully, discreetly, but right. this may never be a story because how in the world are you going to prove yeah, a no, sexual affair that the president has I with knew an intern? That. And I, we should point out just to, for uh, viewers or listeners who don't remember, Ken Starr was the independent counsel appointed to investigate Clinton's whitewater business dealings, the real estate investment he had made. So the idea that he would have expanded his mandate and gotten into this area um, was um, uh, was 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 huge. It was like uh, it was hard to comprehend. But they had a justification because the allegation that Trip went to them with was that Clinton, through mainly through his good friend Vernon Jordan, was pressuring Monica Lewinsky to stay silent and deny falsely to the Paula Jones lawyer in a uh, affidavit that she was having an affair with Bill Clinton. And that's and, and that And there was an offer of a job hush money hush essentially. Money, basically right. uh, Lewinsky was looking for a job. Right. She wanted Clinton's help, Jordan's help to get her a job and this was coming at the same time that she's been subpoenaed about the Paula Jones. And that case. has some historical echoes to the Russia scandal, and frankly, most scandals, because you know the the famous line, "It's not the uh, it's not the crime, it's the cover up." Right. Um, right. And so we'll get to that later. Um, uh, but one thing that this case had, um, this uh, you know that that uh, made it even more dramatic was there were tapes. Yeah, exactly. Like Watergate, right? right? There were tapes, and right. so one of the most um, kind of surreal and dramatic nights uh, uh, that I can remember in journalism was that early evening when. Uh, some of the uh, 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 kind of right-wing people who were conspiring against Clinton and working with Linda Tripp and ultimately Mona Lewinsky brought those tapes to the delivered the tapes, and th these were the tapes or the tape that was supposed to have triggered the investigation by Ken Starr. So we wanted to know what was on that tape, what prompted Starr and his people to launch this investigation. And I think it arrived at something like 12.30 in the morning, and we spent- There was this, uh, the guy, I remember the guy, one of the guys yeah. who brought the tape, he was this yeah. like seven foot tall, <laughs> blind lawyer, Yeah. Uh, we, I don't remember his name, but we called him Lurch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was quite a, there were a lot of wild characters to this story. But, you know, we spent a few hours in Ann McDaniel's office listening to every word on those tape, uh, on that tape. And, um, you know, there were some pretty compelling uh, moments there. Certainly, uh, they were incriminating in the sense that they seemed to confirm Linda Tripp's basic story 
that there has been a relationship between Monica and the president. Um, but when you got to the question of had Clinton pressured her to lie, it was a bit ambiguous. And that was uh, the exact wording was, uh, uh, did he, um, you know he's going to lie, this is Linda Tripp talking to Monica Lewinsky, you've told him, haven't you, Tripp says to her, no, Lewinsky replies. A moment later, well, does he think you're going to tell the truth? No, oh Jesus. So, Murky. an expectation that she's going to lie, but no direct instruction to lie. And if Mueller ultimately is looking at building an obstruction case against Donald Trump, he is going to be, he's going to have to go over evidence like this and it's going to be murky. And well, you're, you're, you're jumping we'll get, over we'll some get, stuff. Get, let's, get, let's, all right, well, we'll let's get just finish the, the but, story. Okay, let's finish here. this story. Yeah. So what I remember that night, I don't know, we left at about three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, and I remember driving by the White House. Back in those days, you could actually drive by the White House. And, and the White House knew none of this was going Washington on. Was Nobody at the White House silent. Was there was just this eerie fucking silence in yeah. Washington. And you, we had the knowledge that this city was going to explode in scandal in right. a matter of days. And it was a powerful and kind of uncomfortable feeling. And I do remember at the time thinking, whatever we do, and it's mostly you, uh, we better get this story 100% right. right. Um, and um, that leads us to the next um, chapter in this story, uh, which is still depressing to me 20 years later, which yeah. is that our bosses, our editors, got very nervous about right. the story. Right. We spent all that Saturday, and Saturday was our deadline at Newsweek, uh, debating about whether to run the story. I, and I believe you, who were in the room, didn't understand why there was any debate at all. We knew, and actually you got further confirming evidence on that Saturday that Starr's people had been to the Justice Department, had been uh, and gotten approval to expand the mandate to investigate this matter. So Specifically the official. Monica Lewinsky matter, it was official. It was official. And the editors were got cold feet. How do we know there really was a relationship there? Well, we don't, but we know this is a matter of official investigation. Can we really publish something that could lead to the impeachment of the president without more evidence? And at that point, <laughs> like roll, yeah, I looked other. at you and we rolled our eyes. Impeachment, what are you talking about? This is just a great fucking story. <laughs> Why are we worrying about that? But, um, but you know what? Yeah. One of the things that was on their minds, yeah. and, you know, and this tells you something about um, the, the era, it's actually a story about technology in a way, which yeah. I find fascinating, is... You know, these were editors of a weekly news magazine. Yeah. And they're thinking, we run this story, um, and what if it turns out that Monica Lewinsky's a flake? Right. Um, and the story just doesn't really have legs. And all of a sudden, you've got this, this explosive Newsweek story sitting on newsstands for a week, and we can't correct it until, like, the next, you know, Sunday or Monday yeah. when the next issue of the magazine comes out. Um, and that, like, for most people now, that's, like, an astonishing thing. Like, why weren't you thinking about, like, going on your website? Well, in fact, we did have a website, newsweek.com. Nobody it was like had a ever AOL read. AOL dial-up. Yep. Well, you know, what did we use it for? The only thing we used that website for was reprinting 
the magazine. Yeah. So what happens, as I recall, is after the decision is made not to run it, and then yeah, crucial, I'll, I'll, crucial. I'll, ta I'll, I'll take it from there because it is quite painful, but uh, I do have to tell it, is um, my sources are fully expecting this is going to be in Newsweek. Stars people were fully expecting it's going to be in Newsweek. And I informed them late that night, no, the story is not going to run. And one of them, um, I have some ideas who it was, um, goes to Drudge. And Drudge pops this little blurb at the top of his website that Late that Saturday night, there were huge debates within Newsweek about whether to run a story about the president's sexual affair with a young White House, former young White House intern, Monica Lewinsky. Oddly, he knows nothing or says nothing about the Ken Starr part of it, which was the story. That's what made it a story. But the basic guts of it were out there. Everybody was chasing it at that point. A couple of days later, the Post breaks the big story that there was this star investigation. And at that point, we knew more than anybody else. We had listened to the tapes. I had spent hours talking to Linda Tripp. I knew the details of the allegations and how Starr had gotten involved um, more, far more than anybody else. And we determined we had to get our story out. So the idea was, well, let's put it on this website that nobody has ever looked at. I didn't even know existed. Um, and um, we wrote a 10,000-word uh, story, whatever it was, um, and got it out that Tuesday night. But to make sure people would read it, because nobody knew about our website, we faxed the story around to news organizations all over town. And then we were being quoted you know, the next day uh, uh, in all the news stories. Well, for um, one thing, you had the blue dress, which nobody else had. Well, yeah. Actually, there's a little funny story to the blue dress. I mentioned it before. At one point, when I'm talking to Tripp, she calls me up and says, tells me about the dress, and she says, um, do you think I should steal it? And I said, and do what with it? And she says, give it to you. That is me. And I say, well, what am I going to do with it? And she said, you can have it tested. And I said, well, for one thing, I'm not sure how I would get a sample of the president's DNA to corroborate the uh, semen on the dress, other than the fact, besides which I wasn't about to take custody of stolen property. I thought she was crazy, and I proceeded to forget about it. But you it. know how crazy that is? Ultimately, yeah. that's what Ken Starr did. <laughs> Right? And, I mean, he had a subpoena, and he was able to get a sample of the presidency. It became the critical, most critical piece of evidence in the whole episode. Uh, it was what forced Bill Clinton to finally tell the truth after denying that he had had this relationship for months and months, and it ultimately led to his impeachment. But it is fascinating that, that this is happening, this kind of crucial um, kind of like inflection point with the internet, you know, with our decision yeah. to go online for the first time in a web exclusive right. and then drudge, right. right? You know, that was the early days of, of, you know, stories that otherwise might not see the light of day getting out because some self-publisher out there just, you know, puts it up. Right. So, look, there are all these... Um, uh, th those are the, sort of the differences between then and today. But as we said before, there are all these interesting parallels and historical echoes between that investigation and what's going on now. Yeah. And so let's talk about some of those uh, in terms of the Russia investigation. Let's talk about some of those. Yeah. But before we get to that, I just wanted to say, just in the context of the Me Too movement, 
um, we've already seen indications that these events would be considered, and, and, and this conduct by Clinton would be considered very differently today than they were back then. Back then, it was, well, this was a private uh, matter, none of the public's business. Um, you go back to the core allegations, first by Paula Jones, that she's summoned to a hotel room and the president exposes himself and asks for a blowjob. Number two, Kathleen Willey, who says the president made unsolicited sexual advances against her in the Oval Office while he was president. And then three, the power dynamics of a president of the United States having being sexually serviced in the Oval Office by a young White House intern. Um, I think those events in and of themselves, those allegations would be viewed far more, far more seriously were they to come out today than they were at the time. But I don't, yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that that's the case. Right, and you uh, saw yeah. that Senator Gillibrand said uh, a few weeks ago right. that, uh, that that Clinton should have resigned over right. this. Whether that you know people can debate that, right. but certainly people might have. Uh, the uh, only wrinkle to that yeah. theory yeah. is that we are even more we are we are even more polarized politically uh, today than Absolutely. we were back then. So it may, it may be that if if uh, that were the uh, story today that people would be going into their ideological corners even more than they did back then, so it's a little unpredictable. But basically, the way society views these stories, it's a totally different ballgame. Right. Um, but the Russia investigation. So the Russia investigation. Yes. Peril. I mean, there are real parallels. You know, the, the first one is impeachment. I mean, this is the first right. time Bill Clinton was impeached. This is the first time. And then acquitted by the Senate. And then acquitted by the Senate. This right. is the first time that we are seriously having a conversation about the potential of president, sitting president being, being in, impeached. Um, right. Um, you know, and, and I think um, there are obviously a bunch of steps before you get to that. And one is Democrats will have to take back control of both houses, uh, both well, chambers of Congress. Before that, Mueller's investigation, now what we are talking about right now this week is a Mueller interview of President Trump. And Trump seems to uh, go back and forth about whether he'd submit to one. His latest comments were maybe he won't. Um, now, you go back to the Clinton Ken Starr matter. Clinton was subpoenaed by Ken Starr, and he could have challenged it and provoked a constitutional crisis, but he realized the political peril of doing that, so he submitted to the interview. That is the interview, by the way, in which he said it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is, in the context of did, did he, was he having a relationship? Did he have a sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky? But the point is the precedent's been set. Right. And it was Trump to refuse to give Mueller an interview if he pressed it. Um, he would be breaking with the precedent set by Bill Clinton and Ken Starr. But let's step back a little bit here. It's likely Trump is going to have a hard time resisting um, this interview. I mean, as yeah. you pointed out, the precedent was set, particularly by Bill Clinton. Um, you know, he's, uh, Mueller's not going to accept written uh, answers to, you know, to written no. questions. So the most likely scenario is that Mueller himself is going to interview Trump. He'll be backed up by other prosecutors. But that's probably going to happen. Um, and that's going to be uh, high drama. Um, and, um, and then the question will be, uh, at the end of the day, what does Mueller do? Um, my guess is going to be that he will end up sending him a report to Congress. But actually, as you've pointed it's out, not that easy. it's not that simple. It's not what does that he have easy to do? Because Ken Starr had the discretion 
to send, actually had a mandate to send a report to Congress because he was acting under an independent counsel act that was separate and apart from the Justice Department. Um, Mueller isn't. Mueller is still ultimately a part of the Justice Department. He reports to Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, who in this case is overseeing the probe because the attorney general, Sessions, is recused. So he is, under the regulations, obligated to provide a report to the deputy attorney general, but it will be up to Rosenstein, Donald Trump's deputy attorney general, um, to decide whether it merits forwarding to the Congress. Now, look, impeachment ultimately is a political act. If the Democrats get back control of the House, and it looks increasingly likely like they, that they actually will, I think um, the odds of impeachment are extremely high. Uh, if not inevitable, the Democrats and the, and the Democratic base, which hold Trump in such contempt, will have a hard time resisting the uh, push for impeachment. Um, Rosenstein may resist sending Mueller's report, but the House Judiciary Committee, if it's controlled by Democrats, will demand a copy. They will call Mueller up to testify. He will have to give, at some point, yeah. a full account. Maybe a year from now, Rosenstein's going to have to set, he's gonna have to set yeah. that up. And, yeah. you know, it's worth pointing out that Rod Rosenstein was a prosecutor uh, working under Ken Starr. Um, yes, he was. So in That's some ways, when I first met him. It, I, I yeah. hanging out with him in, in Little Rock yeah. uh, back in the back in the nineties. Yeah. So it all uh, seems to go back to uh, the nineties. So many and of the same players are uh, still around, and there is a high irony that if Donald Trump has to submit to an interview uh, by the special counsel, it would be because of the precedent set by Bill Clinton. Absolutely. So we actually have as our inaugural guest on Skullduggery, a man who played a small but crucial role in the decision to let the Monica Lewinsky investigation go forward. Eric Holder, the former attorney general, served under Barack Obama for, what, six and a half years. Uh, hey, man, uh, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. I'm uh, glad to know I'm your initial guest, and I hope we'll set a high bar for others to follow. <laughs> By the way, we'll I want... I said, hey, man, because um, like this is a podcast, and you're allowed to say things like that to kind of be more informal. This isn't cable television. So just kind of roll with me, OK? And we're going to call you Eric, because we go back a way long time, and we also established that we could do this off, off air. So it's going to be Eric. And I, and I have been called a lot worse than Eric. So <laughs> this, that's, that's OK. That's OK. OK. Well, we've got a lot to talk about, Eric. We got. Uh, your role as a leader or the leader in the legal resistance to the Trump administration. We got, uh, uh, you know, your role working with the former president, President Obama, on gerrymandering. We got pot policy. Uh, but first, I want to take you back to January 1998. Uh, and uh, Ken Starr's men, and I think they were all men back then. Am I, am I right, Mike? Uh, mostly. Okay. So uh, the, the Whitewater Special Prosecutor, Independent Counsel, um, they are... Um, getting ready to wire up Linda Tripp um, to run a sting on Monica Lewinsky to try to turn her um, into a cooperating witness. Um, but before they do that, they decide they need um, uh, authorization from the Justice Department to expand their jurisdiction. So if I recall correctly, uh, you're at a Wizards 
uh, basketball game and they decide to reach out to you and they actually reach out to you on your, your beeper goes off, which is, which is very 1990s. <laughs> um, but why don't you just tell us, tell us a little bit about that story and then when you come out of it, I want to ask you about um, how that decision got made and questions about the rule of law and administration of justice, how it relates to what's going on right now. Yeah, it was interesting. I was at a, uh, I think they were called the Wizards then, not not the Bullets, the Washington basketball team, and um, they were playing the San Antonio Spurs. And I was actually in the locker room talking to David Robinson and uh, and, and Tim Duncan, which was kind of a, a highlight for me being a basketball fan. And whoever was with me said, uh, "Star's office is trying to get in touch with you." And I said, "All right, well, you know, I'll talk to them when I get out of here." And then they came back to me and said, "No, they need to talk to you right now." And uh, that night we set up a, a meeting that. Uh, for the next day in my office when I was deputy attorney general, I think Neil Katyal attended uh, the, the meeting with me and uh, they laid out the need to expand their jurisdiction and uh, also laid out what they had uh, found with regard to uh, President Clinton's interaction with, uh, with Monica Lewinsky. And um, I was taken aback, uh, was not at all what I was expecting to hear. Uh, spoke to Attorney General Reno uh, on the phone, and we ultimately decided that given the way in which the case was presented to us and the, the need to move quickly, that it would make sense to expand um, Starr's jurisdiction to allow him to do what he wanted to do. What was I your, actually can think, I, can I ask, actually uh, Eric, what was your reaction when you first heard what the issue was at hand? I was shocked. Um, you know, the notion of a um, sexual relationship between the um, the president and I'm not sure she was described as an intern as opposed to an employee or something in, in, in the White House was something that was, uh, you know, very shocking. And then there were um, other parts of it that I'm not sure I've ever really been talked about in mighty grand jury protected. There were other components to what they said they needed to, uh, to, to deal with. It compelled us to uh, allow them to expand the jurisdiction. And there was also, uh, you were under a lot of time pressure, right? Because Partly because of this guy <laughs> who's sitting next to me um, who had the story, and he was going to break it, um, which would have uh, potentially blown their sting operation. Do you remember that? Yeah, there was some concern about, as they expressed to us, some concern about uh, press knowledge of what they were sharing with us and some investigative steps that they wanted to take that would have been impossible to do if uh, this was reported in the, in the media. So I, I want to actually relate this uh, to uh, what's going on you know, right now in Washington with inve investigations, and, uh, the, you know, the Trump administration, Russia, all of that. Um, but I'm curious, that episode where you made a decision, which I'm sure you didn't relish making, after all, it was about a president uh, who had appointed you and that you served under, and a prosecutor who was considered by a lot of people, you know, a Republican, who some people thought was highly partisan, uh, and the underlying allegations, of course, had to do with, you know, you know sexual activity. Uh, in the end, you felt like you had no choice but to expand their jurisdiction. I'm just wondering, wh what does that say to you about the Justice Department? What does that say to you about the rule of law in this country? And do you think that um, with a similar set of facts, how do you think the Trump Justice Department might have dealt with something like that? Well, I think what we did was consistent with the long tradition of the department, which is to try to decide matters on the basis of the facts, the law, uh, and irrespective of the political um, consequences. 
you know, I'm not at all certain. I, I even today question whether or not it, that is something that um, we should have done. It seemed to me at the time it was the right thing to do. I don't think uh, star people were as uh, as upfront with us as they as they should have been. I mean, I, this is all hindsight. Um, but uh, as I said, I think this is what just good justice departments do. Uh, I think there are still sufficient numbers of people at uh, at the Justice Department today um, who would ensure that if faced with that kind of decision today, they would you know react in the same way. If there were certain people in the political parts of the department that would say um, no, they would face enormous amounts of pressure from uh, from the career folks who would say that uh, this is something the Justice Department is uh, is obligated to do. Looking back on it today, 20 years later, particularly in the context of the Me Too mo movement. Um, this grew out of a sexual harassment lawsuit. It involved the president being sexually serviced by a, a White House intern uh, in the White House. Um, what are your thoughts um, about how this played out and the outcome? Well, I, I certainly don't think that um this was something for which the president should have been impeached. Um, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors, um, in essence, reversing um, an electoral result uh, should be reserved for, um, I think, largely things of a, of a political nature as defined by, um, you know, by, by the founders. There should have been a consequence for what uh, I think uh, the president did, but I don't think that the impeachment process was... Uh, the appropriate way in which to do it. What was the appropriate consequence? Well, I don't know. You know, looking back, twenty years, um, uh, you know, twenty years down the road, we're in a different place now than we were then. Um, you know, I remember at that point, people were talking about a censure from uh, the Senate, and I think that might have been something that could have been considered. You know, it might have been a different story if this was something that um, had come up uh, had come up today. Yeah. Um, so. You talked a minute ago about uh, the pressure. You know, if, if there was, uh, if the Justice Department was politi politicized on, you know, on some big decision, there would be enormous uh, pressure from the career people at the Justice Department. But it's the career people at the Justice Department and the FBI who've come under uh, a significant amount of pressure from from Donald Trump, from this president. Um, and this is something that. Um, you've been pretty passionate about. Um, I think when you were attorney general, you had like maybe no Twitter followers, and now you have hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers, and that's well, not- The only reason I didn't have any Twitter followers is I didn't have a Twitter account. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, there you go. Uh, but in, it, it's in, in part because um, you have been very vocal and outspoken about uh, the, uh, the attacks on uh, career officials at the Justice Department and the FBI. Um, and let me just, you know, I, I think the president recently tweeted that the FBI is in tatters, for example. And so let me just read a recent tweet of yours. Um, Trump's comments about and direction to the Justice Department are unprecedented and, as I've said, dangerous. He slanders the honorable people, honorable people there who serve as a core of our democracy. So I want you to just, like, you know, flesh that out and... Um, what do you think the real impact of Trump's um, attacks on his own Justice Department and FBI are? I mean, what is the most um, kind of important uh, thing about uh, the fact that he takes to Twitter and, and does that? Well, it breaks through the norms that we um, have had in place for 
you know, as long as we have been a republic, the notion that the Justice Department is um, is unique within the executive branch. It is not supposed to be subject to um, political pressure, certainly from within um, the administration. And the times when you see the Justice Department get into trouble is when people forget that, when the wall between the Justice Department and the White House is uh, is too low. Now, having said that, what President Trump has done goes far beyond um, far beyond anything that has happened in, in the past. He's tried to put pressure on the attorney general. Uh, he's tried to put pressure on the men and women of the department. He has said, from my perspective, things that are uh, inconsistent with the truth about the performance of people in the department and at the special counsel's um, uh, office. And that's a dangerous thing. That's an attempt, in essence, to delegitimize the, the Justice Department. And it may not have an impact uh, right away, I suspect the men and women of the special counsel's office will do their job and they'll reach whatever conclusion they reach. But it will place in the minds of people in this country um, questions about the Justice Department, questions about the FBI, the results of which you may not see until you're, you know, in a case six months down the road and a credibility determination has to be made between an FBI agent and a witness who testifies in a different way. And as a result of this delegitimization, the credibility that that FBI agent had before um, has been has been lessened. So there's a, a negative collateral impact. You uh, actually, addition- you actually have a long history with the guy who's uh, in charge of that investigation, Robert Mueller. Um, what's your sense of Mueller and the job that he's doing? Mueller is as straight as they come. He's as tough as they come. And regardless of what Trump says to him or about him. Bob is simply going to do the job, and he's going to base his decision on the facts and the law. Um, my only concern, my only concern, is that um, Trump at some point will realize this and um, potentially might fire uh, Bob Mueller. That's, and if he, my, that's my and, concern. And if he, and Eric, if he does fire uh, Mueller, is uh, is that, in your view, an impeachable offense? Should he be impeached for doing that? I think, yeah, I think you then are in impeachment territory, unlike uh, in the Clinton uh, scenario. I think you're then in impeachment territory. I think for this nation, that has to be seen as a red line. Um, that you, criticizing the department, I think, is unacceptable. Um, should be, he should be castigated for that. But if he fires Bob Mueller, there has to be a consequence. There has well, to be a serious consequence. He could, he could only fire Bob Mueller if Rod Rosenstein does it, right? Well, I mean, I don't want to suggest ways in which he could do it, but there, you could actually, if he were the president, he could. I, I suspect he could perhaps repeal the, um, you know, take some executive action to repeal the regulation that sets up the office um, that, uh, that that Rod appointed Bob Mueller to. So that's another way you might be able to. Do what do you? Although I guess the more traditional way, looking at the Saturday Night Massacre. What do you think about Rosenstein? To do it. What do you think about Rosenstein's role overseeing the investigation? when he is a potential witness in the obstruction phase because he was involved in the decision to fire uh, Director Comey. Yeah, I've known Rod for, you know, 20 years or so, and I still have, you know, good amount of faith in him. I don't know enough about the facts here, but I would hope that if, in fact, he is a a witness in the obstruction phase, um, that he would take that into consideration and then, you know, do the appropriate thing. If that means recusing, I would hope that he'd do that. But just hold on one second. Just, but just as we're sitting here today, you think it's still a live possibility that uh, President Trump will fire uh, Bob Mueller? 
Well, I think that's a distinct possibility. I mean, every time I've said he couldn't possibly do that, he's done it. And uh, this would be one of those instances where I said, well, he couldn't possibly fire um, Bob Mueller. I think the possibility exists. Um, gerrymandering, yeah, uh, so, yeah. a, a particular cause of yours, and you just want a big decision from a federal judge this week. Yeah, in North Carolina, um, federal, federal judges there said that uh, what the North Carolina legislature did after they had been slapped down by another set of federal judges was to engage in partisan gerrymandering that um, was uh, unconstitutional. And so beat them on racial grounds. Now we beat them on partisan grounds when it comes to, to gerrymandering. And uh, this case will ultimately be decided by the, uh, by the Supreme Court. And, and just explain quickly, I mean, just so people understand, why is this kind of partisan uh, 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 redistricting, redrawing of congressional districts um, and these maps, why is it so corrosive uh, to the democratic system? And why is it, because as I recall, uh, when you left, when you kind of hung up your cleats at the Justice Department and left, uh, this was the first thing that uh, you and, uh, and uh, uh, President Barack Obama decided to do together. Yeah, I mean, Princeton's done a study and said that uh, the gerrymandering that was done by Republicans in, in 2011, after the 2010 census, uh, was the worst in the last um, half century. Um, it, it has a corrosive impact because it really kind of cheapens um, the vote. If you look at Wisconsin, for instance, the cases for the Supreme Court, Republicans got um, less than half of the vote and in, in, the, in the state as a whole, and yet have about um, two-thirds of the state legislature, about two-thirds of the congressional representation. And the corrosive impact of that is that you have legislators who are more concerned about a primary. They don't have to worry about a general election. They're, not, you know, they're gerrymandered districts, they're protected. So what they have to worry about is being primaried. And that drives people further and further to the right in the Republican Party. It, it's responsible for the dysfunction that we see here in Washington, D.C., in Congress, where people don't talk to one another. Um, they're only worried about uh, getting, past, uh, getting past the primary. And so progress is not made. Eric, a couple of quick questions on some other issues. Uh, Attorney General Sessions uh, last week rescinded a memo issued by your deputy basically telling U.S. attorneys to lay off enforcement of the marijuana laws in states that have legalized uh, possession. Um, your thoughts on Sessions' move? Uh, it doesn't make any sense from a, a law enforcement perspective, and I also think it doesn't make a great deal of sense from a political perspective. What we said was we weren't going to necessarily lay off the laws. We laid out eight or nine factors that we said might warrant um, federal inter intervention. Now, even in those states where um, medicinal and recreational use of marijuana um, was, was legislated by, by, by the states, by taking that cold memo back, you've injected huge amounts of uncertainty. And given the limited resources that the Justice Department has and given the opioid, opioid crisis that we have, it's hard for me to believe now that we're going to start focusing again um, on marijuana cases, and especially also when you see um, the racial disparities that you saw in marijuana enforcement, where, again, blacks and whites use marijuana at about the same um, level, and blacks were arrested uh, for marijuana offenses at four times the rate of their white counterparts. So you are troubled by this move by Sessions? I don't understand it. I'm troubled by it. It makes no sense. So, you, so California just made... Um recreational marijuana legal, and you uh, are counsel to the Senate president, Kevin DeLeon. Um, are, are you helping them figure out how to push back against this? And, and what should their, what should 
should California's strategy and other stra uh, state strategy be to, to deal with this now? Well, yeah, I'm working with the legislature in California and dealing with um, questions of what the Trump administration is going to do to the progress that California has made when it comes to health care, uh, immigration. Uh, I, I suppose this will be another potential uh, matter that we'll be, we'll be looking at. Um, you know, I, I think that what we tried to do in the Obama administration was to let the states experiment. In fact, that's what Trump said that he thought was appropriate during um, the campaign. And then lay out, as I said before, this notion of, you know, you can't, you can only go, go so far. Um, Sessions, as I said, has just injected huge amounts of uncertainty into the, into the equation now. Hey, Eric, uh, Oprah, what do you think? Hey, you know, I mean, I think she could be a, a formidable candidate. It's, uh, it's interesting, you know, it's, it's only two days post-speech, and so we'll see what happens. And I, I suspect, like Hillary Clinton, the day that she announces her popularity will probably plummet about 50, about 50 percent. But she's a unique individual who I, who I know, uh, you know, a little bit, and uh, she'd be an interesting candidate. I but, think it has been reported that you yourself have been considering a run for president. Um, uh, you still doing so? And how does Oprah's uh, possible entry uh, affect your plans? Well, I'm hoping for the vice presidency now, if Oprah's running. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't, you know, compete with her with her star power. So we'll uh, we'll have to we'll we'll, we'll see we'll see what she does. <laughs> Excellent dodge. But, but seriously, do you think the Democrats really need someone, you know, another kind of like television celebrity, uh, you know, to go up against the you know the Republicans, Donald Trump? I mean, is that um, that kind of tit for tat really good for uh, for, for for American politics? No, I, I think we have a wealth of uh, good candidates, um, you know, that I can kind of imagine in the Democratic Party for want to seek the, the presidency in, in, in 2020. But I think ultimately it's going to be a question of, you know, who's got the best platform. And um, when it comes to issues of health care, tax fairness, criminal justice reform, um, question of choice for women, I think Democrats have all the right answers and the support of, of the people. Again, remember, Trump lost the popular vote by almost three by three million, um, so I, I, you know, I, I think we, 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 if we focus on the issues um, and make that the primary concern, we'll come up with the um, appropriate candidate. All right. Well, here's what I think. I think that when you announce your candidacy for the presidency of the United States, you ought to, You'll you ought be to, to know. You ought to do, do it, it on skullduggery on this by, podcast. By then, it's going to yeah. have a massive audience, um, and you will be able to reach all of the constituencies that you need. Uh, for your run for the White House. And we'll actually, we'll have you on with Oprah. Announcement of the ticket. There we go. Oprah and Eric together. Yeah. You know? All right, man. Good, uh, good of you to do this. Uh, thank you very much for uh, helping us launch Skullduggery. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on as your inaugural guest, and I wish you all uh, the best of luck. You're two great journalists and two good friends. All right. Take care. Thank you. So what do you think, man? Uh, I thought some uh, interesting nuggets there. Uh, Firing Mueller. Yeah, I thought that was actually. Um, I thought that was the most interesting thing, and uh, he seems to think that he's that Trump is still going to do it. I mean, because the conventional wisdom has been, you know, he Trump has not been tweeting right. a lot, attacking Mueller. You know, you hear store, you know, White House sources saying, you know, he knows that that's the red line that they wouldn't be able to get away with it. But I think Holder clearly thinks that's still likely to happen. This right. is a president who is known for 
busting through norms. Yep. And I think we got him for the first time on the session's pot memo, saying yep. it makes no sense, yep. uh, voicing his criticism yep. of what the uh, Attorney General has done. So uh, and a little news for skullduggery. Clearly also did not uh, deny that he is mulling a presidential run. It was an artful dodge. Uh, kind of, actually, I was going to ask him, um, you know, if he hadn't brought it up himself, would you consider running as Oprah's vice president? But he, he brought it up himself. Yeah, so, there uh, is. Okay, it was tongue in cheek, but I think we can, you know, we can get a headline out of it. What do you think? <laughs> These days, yeah. <laughs> anything goes. Uh, yeah, high, uh, skullduggery has the highest of standards, right. so we will put this yes. in the appropriate context. All right. Our thanks to Eric Holder. And if you like what you were listening to, don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can also watch us on the Newsroom app. Talk to you next Friday. See you then.